It's three weeks in. Some of y'all are already like reading the fine print of your syllabi. You're like, do I have to go to this class or what can I get by with? Maybe you're already planning an exit strategy out of some commitment you made to somebody, some club you joined or some small group you said you'd be at. And now you're like, oh, overcommitment. I said yes to too much stuff. And you're stressing out. Uh, You're overwhelmed. You're already a little bit anxious. And there's 10 weeks to go. And so uh, this is something that we probably need to uh, listen to tonight. And why don't you stand up while I read this? This is uh, the word of God. We don't believe, uh, I hope you don't uh, think that I'm such a wise guy that you should listen to my opinions. I don't share any of this as my opinions. We share this as uh, the word of God, authoritative to us and over us. Um, It's how we hear this. Three things we'll see in here. Number one, we are restless people because we have too high a view of ourselves because we have too low a view of God, and we will never find true rest until those two things are reversed. Those are the three things. We're restless because I have too high a view of myself, too low a view of God, and I will never be able to rest until those things are reversed. This is the word of the Lord, a psalm of David. David says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, O RUF, O New Mexico State, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Let's pray. Father, this uh, passage sounds beautiful and it sounds so foreign uh, because our heart is lifted up. We are preoccupied with things way outside of our pay grade, things way beyond our control. Our eyes are raised up way too high with our ambitions and our beliefs about what we should be able to accomplish with our time or our lives. And because of that, We're anything but a weaned child. We feel like that baby who is screaming, fidgeting, restless, anxious, scared, crushed by the weight of life. And so, Father, close the gap. We see this and we want this. We want this. We want to be this calm. And we see so far away. We pray that you would close the gap. And the way that you would do that tonight would be by giving us a glimpse of Jesus as he is. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks, and uh, why don't you take a seat? So it won't be surprising for you to hear me say that music is a very powerful thing. Uh, Some of you are musicians, and you know this, but music is powerful because it has the power to carry you to somewhere new. Just Just the music alone, but especially if it's music accompanied by lyrics, it has the power to take you from one place and to carry you to a new place. And so back during finals week last semester, when you studied or when you went and worked out or ran to get rid of the stress, you put on, you had some Spotify playlist or Pandora mix and you put on music because you need to be carried from a place of distraction to a place of focus, right? And when you feel sad and down in the dumps, um, you put on Adele or Bon Iver 
to make you even more sad and depressed, to carry you to a place of being stuck in your misery. I'm just kidding. Um, or uh, you go to a party, and it feels really lame and awkward until someone hits play on the music, and then it gets better because the music took you from a place of social awkwardness to a place of, wow, this is kind of getting pretty cool. I can stay here. I don't have to run and be like, oh, I forgot that other meeting I got to be at. Music has power because it carries you somewhere new, um, which is exactly why Anna and I uh, had to start singing Eli, our 16-month-old, 17-month-old, to sleep. We had to start singing him to sleep because music has power to carry you to sleepiness too. And so we started singing this song almost as early as Eli was born. We started singing to him the song, Abide With Me, which if you've been around RUF any length of time, you know because we sing it here. And um, here's the thing. I found, and I imagine this is true of you too, I found it true of me, that that song, singing Abide With Me to Eli every night, or every night I put him to bed, has had more effect on me than it has him. It, it's, it has an effect on him. It carries him from bouncing off the walls. He's like a 100% boy. Bouncing off the walls, it carries him to a place of tiredness in like one minute. It's awesome. But it carries me from a place of whatever kind of day I've had. Frustrations, franticness, fears and anxieties, whatever happened that day. My day ends in a dark room singing to and over my son, Abide with me, abide with me. And you know some of those songs. Um, it's I need thy presence every passing hour. What but your grace can thwart the tempter's power. Who like thyself my guide and stay can be. Through cloud and sunshine, Lord abide with me. That, singing that to him, I did it at first to carry him to a place of sleepiness. And now it carries me, it reorients me. Every night that we sing that, music has power to carry you somewhere new, right? Well, the Psalms are songs. They're Israel's songbook. It's like a hymn book. Like if you grew up in the church, you had a hymn book too, right? You had a book of songs. And uh, these songs in particular are called the Psalms of Ascent, like ascending a staircase. And the reason why is because uh, what they were, that was like a genre of music, like Christmas carols are a genre of music or Easter songs are a genre of music. The Psalms of Ascent were a kind of music. So if, if there were an ancient Israelite in the room with us tonight, that would be weird, number one. But number two, they would say, oh, Psalms of Ascent. I remember the time when me and my whole family, we were on the way to Jerusalem to go worship in the temple, and we used to sing that song all the time. So these songs were shorter, and they were much more memorable because like Christmas carols, you can sing every word because you sing them every year. Well, the Psalms of Ascent were like the most near and dear songs to little Israelite boys and girls and Israelite teenagers, okay? And so they knew these songs, and it carried them from a place of distraction and the noise of whatever life they were coming out of. And it literally, as they walked from their town to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem for the festivals, it would carry them from a place of noise, distraction, being checked out, whatever, to a place of nearness and focus on the Lord, all right? That's what the Psalms do. The songs, you could say the Bible as a whole has the power to carry you from where you are, where it meets you, to the Lord. Now, one caveat before we push on to these, these three things we're going to see. Compare or contrast what I just said to all the techniques and strategies and apps and songs and entertainment venues 
that our culture, our campus, our own hearts tell you can bring rest to your soul, right? There's no shortage of this stuff, right? I, one of the, I guess I'm weird because of this, but um, one of the things I do, if I can't fall asleep, I'll go to Google Play and start searching through the apps and be like, what are the top rated apps? What's the next productivity or habit forming app I can get? Because I need new habits in my life. Um, and I, I go through there and what I'm really looking for is something that will bring me rest. And they're marketed to you that way. Okay, go on, the app, go on the app store, go on Google Play, and you'll see all of this stuff. But so are all of the entertainment venues, all of the gaming systems, all of the new streaming services. They're pitching to you a way to find rest for your soul. Here's the thing, though. Nothing else can bring you to rest, like true rest. Because true rest, and I'm talking about soul-saturating Bone deep, like all the way down to your bones. Emotionally stilling, calming rest only comes from the person of God. I'm not saying all these other things aren't good, aren't fun, aren't nice little treats in life. They are. But they can't, they can't make the ripples and the chaos of your life calm. Only the person of God can do that. Which is why this weird phenomenon happens. Did I share the story with all of you or just a few of you? I don't remember. Uh, Four weeks into Christmas break, like a few days before y'all got back, I literally had this thought come into my head that I'm humiliated to share with you. Four weeks after Christmas break, and I had the thought, I really need a break. Like I feel, I just, I don't know if I can keep going. I need a break. I need to rest. Did you feel that way at all over your five-week Christmas break? How does that happen? Like, the reason I'm embarrassed to say it is, like, I just had four weeks off. We weren't doing RUF. Y'all were all out of town. I had four weeks to rest, and I said at the end of it, oh, something's got to give so that I can rest. Did you know it's possible to be four weeks deep into your rest, and you're not a single bit more rested? Have you ever been on a vacation or a road trip with your buddies, or a spring break trip, and all you wanted out of it was a little bit of refreshment and rejuvenation, and you came back more anxious, more stressed out than you left on it. Uh, Have you ever considered that the prevalence of all of these sleep medicines and sleep apps and sleep aids suggests that we are people who, even if we get eight hours of sleep, still wake up freaked out, exhausted, and scared of what's facing us the next day? You can rest, and it doesn't bring you rest. Um, you can cancel all of the, the, the scary stuff on your schedule. You can back out of commitments. And aren't you like me? If you say, I can't go to that thing tonight because I got to study, don't you find yourself procrastinating during the hour you would have been there? Like watching 17 YouTube videos, and it's like six hours later than you would have gotten home from that group meeting or small group or study session, and you're like, ah, that was a lie that I believed. I, what, I didn't stay home to study more. Now, whether that's kind of true for you or all the way true for you, the point is this, and please get this before we go into any of these three things. I hope at the very least tonight, we can get to a place where we can stop blaming our circumstances, our schedules, um, and all of these other things outside of us, that we can stop blaming them for the inside restlessness that you and I feel, right? Right? We can't blame those things. If, if, if that's all you leave with, we got somewhere. But uh, please tune in because if 
there's something deeper at root behind our restlessness. I hope you'll listen because the Bible offers us a diagnosis. And until you got the right diagnosis, you can't have the right cure. Okay? So the first way kind of the Bible talks about why we are so restless, it puts its finger on two reasons. And they're the first of the two points. Number one, we have way too high of a view of ourselves. And number two, we have way too low a view of God. And the final thing we'll talk about is until those two things are reversed, rest will be elusive. And we'll be people who are always resting, 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 and never feeling rested. And always being very anxious and stressed out. So the first thing, we're restless because we have way too high a view of ourselves. And there's three sub-things here. If you're a note-taker, an organized thinker, then this is a treat for you. Um, Because I'm usually rambling. But there's three ways in which we think too highly of ourselves. Number one, we think we have a right to much more than we actually do. Like we deserve, we think we deserve much more than we actually do. The second thing is we think, you think you're able to do more than you actually can do. Okay? And the third thing is you think you're responsible for doing much more than you're actually responsible for doing. Okay, so we think we have a right, we think we're able, and we think we're responsible for much, much more uh, than we actually are. But that first thing is we think we have a right to much more than we actually do. And this is the Bible's language. When it uses this language in uh, verse 1, that my heart is not lifted up. Any, any other place you search the Bible for that phrase, my heart is lifted up, you'll find the word haughty, which is not a word we use anymore, but haughty means kind of puffed out, like proud, um, superior arrogant, right? So when he says my heart is not lifted up, what he's meaning is I am not proud, I'm not arrogant, I'm not, uh, my heart is not puffed out. Even, it's easy to say, okay, I'm not that kind of jerk of a person who goes around telling everyone I'm better than them. But even if we're humble braggers, or even if you're a private bragger, like you only brag to yourself, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, but you would never dare let anybody hear that internal voice because of the social consequences. But you, you expect people to worship. And that's what I mean, that we, we think we have a right to much more than we actually do. And this causes us great stress and anxiety. Um, here's uh, the reason why. Um, if I, deep inside of me, if I think that I'm an awesome guy and the world's just waiting to find out, then I will get really stressed out if you ever do anything to threaten that or get in the way of that. For instance, let's say if I have a deep internal, I I have a deep sense, I'm an awesome pastor or I'm an awesome friend, husband, dad, worker, whatever. And then you make a comment to me or I catch wind of a comment that suggests the contrary. Man, RUF's really like, this isn't right about it. Or if Anna makes a comment, even if it's a loving comment, but it suggests that like maybe Ben's not the greatest husband or the greatest father. You see how that causes a lot of stress inside of me? I get really anxious, sometimes really frustrated because I thought, I ha- I, deep inside of me, I think I have a right to much more than I actually have. I have no right before God and you for you to bow down and worship me. But you are like me. You have a heart like I do and you expect other people to worship you. And so when that gets thwarted, or something gets in the way of that, we experience it as stress, right? Does that make sense? Um, and we are either worried about whether or not we're going to get that worship from other people, or we're dissatisfied. Maybe you are the cool kid. 
Maybe you did draw the lottery on personalities or athletic ability or musical ability or academic prowess. And people do admire you. And you have their attention, their acclaim, their adoration. And you've had it long enough to where you realize it is not worth it at all. Because I feel just as hollow and empty inside, just as restless. And so that's why we experience stress from these things. The second is um, we think we're able to do much more than we're actually able to do. I want to take a little bit of longer, a minute or two on this to explain it. Because I think it's one of the biggest things. We are not okay with our limits and our boundaries as human beings. Uh, what Clayton read earlier, there's a couple of things I wanted to highlight from that, but one of them is John the Baptist, who was adored by the crowds. People thought, I mean, you think Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are adored right now, filling stadiums of 12,000 people? That was John the Baptist, except not as big of a jerk as Donald Trump or something else. But people are flocking to them. They had the limelights on them. And John the Baptist said one of the hardest things a human being has ever said. I am not the Messiah. He was saying, I am not God. Jesus who comes after me is. Limelight off of me and onto him. We, uh, We are not okay with the boundaries and the status that we have as human beings. Here's a little little breeze through the Bible um, to prove my point. And if you've been around the Bible or church very long in your life, this will sound very familiar to you. God has put boundaries on everything that he made and limits on everything that he made. All right. So think back to Genesis one. He made the light and guess what? He put a boundaries, put boundaries on the light. The light is for daytime and the moon or darkness is for nighttime. He made the sea and then he put limitations on the sea. In the book of Job, it says, God spoke to the sea. He said, you can come that far and no further. Figurative language for however he did that process scientifically or biologically. Um, God made animals or fish. And he said, your boundary, your limitation is the sea. That's your designated place. He made the moon and he said, your place is the sky, not anywhere else. He put boundaries on everything and he put boundaries on human beings too. We are embodied creatures. You can only be one place at one time. We're finite creatures. You have a start date and an end date. Um, We are intellectually limited creatures. You do not have the mind of God, which means there are things you cannot know, will not know, and will never know, and I won't either. This intellectual pursuit is not unto infinity. There are boundaries. Things that we cannot know, we call it mystery. Um, And these are the... Everything has boundaries, everything has limitations. Now, what happens a chapter later in Genesis chapter 3? It's a boundary violation. What did, this, what did the serpent whisper in the ears of humanity? You can be like God, the limitless one, the boundaryless one, the transcendent one who is in all places at all times, who knows all things, who is all powerful. That was the lie that humanity in its perfection believed which means it's titillating. You like the sound of that, my friends? You love the sound of that, that you could be like God, and and I do too. It's such a sweet promise that you could be like God. This app can make you like God. This new technology can make you like God. This degree, this internship, that person dating me or marrying me can make me like God. You can be like God. You can bust through the boundaries. 
I've been building a fence in our backyard uh, this weekend because um, come the war- when the warmer weather comes here, Eli's getting kicked out of the house and he's going to spend his days in the backyard because he's destroying the inside of our house. Um, and I, I've almost done with the fence. I had like a three-foot section. I mean, we have a big backyard. I hope you get to see it. Come over. We'll have a party soon. But we, it, it's, the whole thing was covered in a fence except for like two and a half or three feet. Where's the one place Eli ran to when he went out there? Whoosh, right out the hole in the fence and into the part that I'm trying to keep him out of. Look, our hearts are that way. Put up a fence that's 359 degrees around you. You want to be on that one degree that lets you out of it. Because we believe, because of sin, because of delusion and deception, we believe that busting out of those boundaries, busting out of our limitations is freedom. Here's why that is delusional. Imagine if my hip or my leg, my femur said, man, this hip socket is so constraining. It's so limiting. Such a enslaving boundary. I'm going to pop out, bust free, and go do my own thing. Everything in your body, like your body works because things keep their place and remain in their limited, boundaried place. So my hip socket isn't, yes, it's constraining. Yes, it means my leg can't do whatever my leg wants to do. But it does mean my leg can be a leg and do what it was designed to do, right? The limitations that God put on his creation enables his creation to do what it was designed to do. So freedom, the way we in our brokenness imagine it, is actually brings pain and dysfunction. The way my leg running off on its own saying, ah, finally free, would only bring pain and discomfort. The way you and I saying, I can find true soul-saturating rest apart from the living God who made me and knows me. I can find it elsewhere. It's the same way when you run away. We find pain, dislocation, and dysfunction. We don't work as human beings anymore. You know what that's like. It's week three. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to be out of socket uh, in that way? And it's all because we believe the lie we can be like God. Well, we can't do whatever we want. You are not able to do certain things by design. You're not omniscient because God doesn't want you to be omniscient. Because he's omniscient. And he wants you to trust that he knows all things and has them under his control. You're not omnipotent. You can't do everything. Try as you may. Try to wrench back control from that roommate situation or your eating situation or your addictive patterns. Try to wrench back control and you'll find out you have very little power. As much as we hate to admit that. Um, We are not omnipresent. Skype doesn't eliminate that. Computers don't eliminate that. Our cars don't eliminate that. We overcommit because we don't believe or we believe we're omnipresent. Yes, I can be at this club and this meeting at the exact same time. I'm going to say yes to you and yes to you. One of you has got a surprise coming later on when I'm not there. We believe we're omnipresent. You get it? We're not okay with our boundaries. The third thing is we think we're responsible for much more than we actually are. This is really quick. Here's this. Here's what I mean. God doesn't ask you or expect you to be responsible for things he has not asked you or expected you to be responsible for. You're like, gee, what a genius statement. Here's what I mean. For example, you, Bible study leaders, you can faithfully prepare a Bible study. You're responsible to do that, to love your friends by thoughtfully preparing for that. You cannot make people come. You can't 
you are not responsible for the room being filled. Nor are you responsible for being an amazing conversation no one will ever forget. That's in the hands of the Lord. Um, you can try to lovingly, faithfully, wisely get to know a girl or a guy in here to date them because maybe you want to marry them. But you are not responsible for turning their heart to you to make them want to date you or marry you. That is in the hands of the Lord, which means we entrust it to him. Right? There are certain things you are responsible for. You can study for a test. God wants you to work diligently to prepare for a test. You are not responsible for the outcome in this regard. There are things you do not know that will be on there. Things happen in life that prevent you from studying. Whatever the list is, we have to discern what we are responsible for and what God has never called us to be responsible for. Here's the point because I want to move on. Um, We grow so big and God grows so small by comparison. Because we think we have a right to things we don't. We think we're able to do much more than we're actually able to do. And we think we're responsible for many more responsibilities than we actually are. The cumulative effect of this is what this old Catholic novelist named Flannery O'Connor, who if you know me, you'll hear her talked about a lot. She says, this was her prayer journal, which they found a few years ago, actually, and put in print. She said this, dear God, I don't know if you saw the moon tonight, it's appropriate. Dear God, I cannot love you the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and I am earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing the whole moon. In other words, I am so big, I'm eclipsing the moon. And all that I see is this tiny little sliver. Um, The crescent is very beautiful, but what I'm afraid of, dear God, is that my own shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will see that thin sliver and think, that's you. In other words, I have grown so large and God has grown so small that I'll look at that thin sliver and say, oh, God's not really a big part of my life. He's so ignorable, dismissible, irrelevant, tiny little sliver. Whereas in reality, I have cast such a large shadow because of my pride, my arrogance, my hubris, that by comparison, he's become very small. John the Baptist said, "If, if God is to increase, we must decrease which happens through confession and repentance and admitting before him, I have overinflated myself and my sense of responsibility so, so big that it has eclipsed him. I want to I speed through this next point very quickly so we can end where we said we would. We're restless because God is too small. We think he's too small. I've shared this with a few of you before. I've been to like, Eight or nine summer conferences with RUF. We're about to start talking about that in a week or two. Huge summer trip. Great teaching. In the mornings, there are seminars. There's like 30 offerings. And when you get there, you get this big booklet and has all of these different topics. Like sex, dating, and marriage. Or uh, making decisions. Or worship. Or whatever else. And I've noticed this trend. Several years ago, there was a seminar on, get this, it was on Jesus. At an, at an RUF Christian summer conference. Can you imagine that? Uh, and there was a conference on um, depression and anxiety. I've been to this conference. I'm not knocking it. I'm just pointing out a trend here. And what I noticed, I went to the Jesus seminar that one time, and there was like six people there. I kid you not. And then later in the, that morning, I went to the depression and anxiety seminar, and there were 300 people there. Like, there weren't chairs for enough people. And it was such a telling juxtaposition that I was like, could these two things be related? Could it be? 
Is that not telling about how, where we think the, the source of our anxiety is? We don't think it has anything to do with God. We think it has to do with schedules and overcommitment and professors and everything else. It has everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with the one whose name is rest. He is our rest. And so I found that very telling that we notice a problem, we notice we're stressed out, and we go straight to the drive through quick solution of how can I get rid of this stress because I'm anxious about it. And we bypass the maker of our souls, the lover of our souls, the redeemer of our souls, who knows a thing or two about bringing rest to frantic people. Our view of God is too small, right? Does that episode at Cumber Summer Conference not prove that? Our view of God is very small. Um, a quick, a quick run through of these examples. The disciples, when they thought Jesus, God was very small, freaked out when a storm hit them on the sea until they saw Jesus say one word and nature responded, peace, be still. Uh, and the deadliest catch episode turns into rowing on a tranquil sea. The, the, the disciples were freaking out when the king was killed and crucified until they saw Jesus raise up an indestructible power. And then when they saw God was big, they stopped stressing out. The early church was persecuted, was killed, was driven from their homes at the end of a knife. And they were freaking out until they saw how big and how faithful their God was. And then their stress dropped. Until you see how big and how near and how powerful and how gracious and how faithful and how attentive the living God is, you will never find rest. That's our last point. Until those things reverse, until God becomes big and we become small, like John the Baptist said, we must decrease, he must increase. Until that happens, rest will be an elusive pursuit of the rest of your life and we will never find it. Really quickly, how do we do this? David tells us. It's the only command in here. He says the last verse, Israel, which are his people. Which is why I said to you, New Mexico State or RUF. Put your hope in the Lord. Which means dig up where you have planted your hopes and transplant them in the Lord. Because only with him are they safe. Only in him, his word to you, his grace His rescue, only there will you find the true rest that you and I are chasing and spending a lot of money trying to get. This hope comes two ways. David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. That implies I do something, which means the next time, if you know the Lord, the next time you're in that moment of panic and overwhelming, you've got to learn to start talking to yourself. And it sounds like this, Ben, Put your hope in the Lord. Because, listen, my soul doesn't like to be told what to do, so I have to argue with it. Put your hope in the Lord. I quiet and calm my soul. How so? You can recite this psalm to yourself. Guess what? There's one God. I'm not him. I'm not the Christ, and the world's doing fine. I can rest. Jesus is in control, and he has done good things with his control. Um, The second thing is this. This is the last thing. There's something for God to do too. Because this picture of a weaned child, do you know what weaned means? Weaned means when, weaned is not what Addie is. Addie is not weaned yet. Addie needs milk and she 
loses it when she gets hungry. Like full on level 10 screaming like the world is ending loses it when she feels the need for milk or anything else. Um, A weaned child is like you. You can get hungry and you don't freak out because you know where another meal is coming from. And so you can endure through periods of need and hunger and other things because you're aware of where your provision comes from. And David says, my soul is like a weaned child. Well, Addie can't wean herself. We have to do it for her. You can't wean your soul from ambition, from pride, from love of the world, from the delusion of finding rest and everything else. You can't do it. That's something you're not responsible for. That is something the Lord God does for his people. And we've already sung about it. That song that you stumbled over because you didn't know the words or it sounded really weird and really ancient. I asked the Lord that I might grow. That's what it means for God to wean you. I prayed that I might grow in faith and strength and might know the Lord more. I want to know him. I want to know him. And he answered my prayer by introducing me to my evils and the temptations that rage in my heart. And he showed me how weak I am. In other words, he reintroduced me to my limitations and my boundaries. He showed me how small I am. And it says in the last verse, that is how the Lord answers prayer for grace and faith. He brings you back to sobriety and back to sanity, back to rest. When he is big and you are small, life can be content. Rest can be real and it can last longer than the next span you have without any tests or anything else going on. Let's pray that God would bring this rest to us. Even tonight, Lord, we pray that uh, in Jesus we would find the true rest for our souls. He is the one who has paid the price for our hubris and our pride. He is the one that walked into the hellstorm of the noise and the chaos that we fear, that we might enjoy true rest, true friendship with God through him. And so I pray that even tonight that as you wean us, as you take things away from us and we experience that as stress, would you show us even the stressful things in our life right now you are using to wean us and to bring us back to sanity and sobriety and to you. We ask this all in his name. Amen.